It's day seven of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Well, we are completing one week today. Can you believe it? If you are new here, we welcome you. But if you have been coming here for seven days straight, welcome back. This is a big milestone, and I encourage you to stay the course. Even if you get discouraged, even if you start to, quote, fall behind. Remember I said for the people in the back, there is no such thing as falling behind as long as you're showing up. And that doesn't even necessarily mean you're showing up to Bible study. It means you're showing up in God's Word. That's the most important part. Even if you are only digesting two minutes of these videos at a time or reading two lines at a time, it's going to the point of hearing God speak to your heart and to your mind so that you can meditate on the Word or you can pray about the Word. You don't have to get through this whole year reading the entire Bible. It's a great goal, but I just don't want people to quit. So no matter what happens, when you get discouraged or if you fall behind, and I will tell you it is very easy to do. A lot of people will fall off, but come back. Just come back. Come back to the Word. So now that we've been through one week, I do want to ask you this question, and I would love it if you could answer in the comments below. What is the one thing that God has spoken to your heart this week? I always say that whenever we read God's Word, You will notice that he will start to highlight things in your heart that he is speaking. You'll hear certain things over and over. It'll be a theme. It'll be a word. And when that happens, I encourage you to write it down. Write it down. Write it on your heart. Pray about it. Journal on it. There's a reason why he is speaking that. Even if it doesn't make sense at the time, it later will. You will be mind blown as to why God has spoken something to your heart in a certain season whenever you see it revealed later on. Now, there have been a few people who have asked, how can we support this ministry? If you feel led to, we do have a link in the description box below on how you can help out if that is something that God is pressing onto your heart. If it is not, don't feel condemned, judged, or in any way guilty about it, because if that is not being asked of you, then it's simply not. And as always, another way to help us out is by liking this video, hitting that like button, making sure you're subscribed, you got the notification bell on, join us in our Facebook group, all the things where we can partner together to be able to help grow our ministry and to help spread the gospel throughout the world. Today, we are in Job chapters 14 through 17, where Job is continuing to express his hopelessness and his desire for relief, while friend number one, Eliphaz, is back to continue pressing his belief that Job needs to repent if he wants that relief. So before we get into it, let's go ahead and pray and prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this Sunday, for those who are in real time with us, Lord. This is the day that you were resurrected, that we remember what you have done for us, Jesus. We are so, so grateful, eternally grateful for what you have done, for giving us freedom, for giving us new life, for forgiving us of our sins, for renewing our minds, renewing our spirits, renewing our eternal destiny. So we are so grateful for that today, Lord. I pray that our eyes, ears, and hearts will be open to everything that you want to speak to us, Holy Spirit. And I just pray that we will be submitted to the very words that you say to our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be able to have a full understanding, an accurate understanding of your word. And I pray that we will help to sharpen one another, Lord, throughout this process. Thank you so much for this community. I pray for your blessing to be upon them, Lord, that you will meet every need, that you will be what they need, God. We love you so much. are so grateful for this time. We praise you and honor you in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, chapter 14. So Job continues in his plea to God. Man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Well, Really, only Jesus can do that. And this kind of reminds us as to why we need a Savior in the first place. You see, we're not sinners because we sin. We actually sin because we are sinners. We are born with that sin nature. So we are all in need of a Savior as soon as we take our first breath. There is not one, since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you, and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. So again, he's feeling very fenced in. Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy like a hired hand his day. For there is hope for a tree, or more hope for a tree than him, is what he's feeling like, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease. And we can't help but think about Isaiah chapter 6, where it says that the house of Jesse will actually be cut off, but it will sprout new growth with the holy seed as the stump, which is pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, and the new growth will be that beautiful branch that comes forward. Forth. Though its roots grow old on the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. But a man dies and is laid low, man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. So again, he has this uncertainty of what happens in the afterlife. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol, that you would conceal me until your wrath be passed, that you would appoint me a set time and remember me. Now, I do want to stop here on this idea of Sheol. In the Old Testament, Sheol is basically the place of death. It's this conscious existence or known as the grave. It's where people go after they die. So both the wicked and the righteous go here in the Old Testament. Now, in the New Testament, when we hear of Sheol, it is referred to as Hades, and you will learn in Luke chapter 16 that there are actually two realms in Hades. One is a place of comfort, which is where Lazarus went. It is also known as Abraham's bosom or paradise. We also find out that Jesus went to this place after he dies, and he takes with him those from the Old Testament, those who died previously to heaven with him. Then the second place is the place of torment, or what is known as hell or Gehenna. This is where unbelievers go. These are, this is where the wicked went from the Old Testament. This place is going to be emptied at the final judgment after the millennium, And those who are judged to deserve this eternal death will be put into the lake of fire. And so we oftentimes think that hell is the final resting place for unbelievers, but it's actually not. The lake of fire will be after the judgment. So two places in this place of Sheol. So in this time, if you were righteous, then you would go to that place of comfort. And if you were not, you would go to Gehenna or hell. And this is where Job wants to go instead of being in this life of suffering. If a man dies, shall he live again? And of course, we know the answer is yes, Job. He shall live again. All the days of my service, I would wait till my renewal should come. Other translations actually say, until my relief should come. You would call and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. So he has a little bit of a glimpse of hope here. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag and you would cover over my iniquity. 
So in this chapter so far, we see Job reflecting on the brevity of life and his longing for the afterlife, despite his cloudy conception of it, right? Now, with your knowledge of the afterlife, how does it affect the way that you deal with life, especially during the hard times? But the promising thing here is that he actually has a little bit of a glimmer of hope. You know, when he starts to actually focus on the afterlife, and for us, that would be focusing on heaven and getting a heavenly perspective on our lives, that is when we'll be able to say, you know what, none of this is even going to matter. And while he is saying that his transgressions would be sealed up in a bag, he is saying that his sins are numbered and sealed in. But for us, yeah, they are sealed in, but they're also tossed away into the sea of forgetfulness. So that's the good thing for us having Jesus. But the mountain falls and crumbles away and the rock is removed from its place. The waters wear away the stones, the torrents wash away the soil of the earth. So you destroy the hope of man." You prevail forever against him and he passes. You change his countenance and send him away. His sons come to honor and he does not know it. They are brought low and he perceives it not. He feels only the pain of his own body and he mourns only for himself. So that just ends on a depressing note of Job looking at the fact that we all just get old and wither away. Chapter 15, Eliphaz is back for round two. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge or empty knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Now, the east wind were scorching hot winds that would come out of the east, and they wouldn't bring any rain with them. So oftentimes when these east winds would blow, everything would dry up. There would oftentimes be drought. And so he's basically saying, you are filling your belly with this emptiness. Should he argue in unprofitable or foolish talk or in words with which he can do no good? So he's saying, there's no use for you to defend yourself, Job. Everything that you're saying is foolish and empty. But you are doing away with the fear of God. So he's accusing him of having no fear of God and hindering meditation before God. So among all of the other false accusations, here we end up at Eliphaz accusing Job of not having a prayer life. How would he know that? He can't see what Job is doing behind closed doors, and neither can anyone see what you're doing behind closed doors. But what matters is that God can. He knows whether or not we are actually desiring to fellowship with Him, and our prayer life will be the reflection of that. We can come to Bible study every single day, but if we aren't building a relationship with Christ, what good is it truly going to do? So heart check, do you have a prayer life? And if you feel convicted in this, don't worry. We are going to work on this throughout the year. This is why we begin and end every lesson with prayer, because I believe that through the hearing of other people's prayers, it can actually help to strengthen your own. And if you haven't noticed, our ending prayer is always linked to the word that we just read, because praying the word is one of the best practices that you can have in place. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. So he is over here twisting Job's words from chapter 9, verse 20. And I'm just like, wow, Eliphaz, don't hold back. Like you just come straight in with these sharp rebukes here. Are you the first man who was born? And by the way, this will actually be a theme of some of God's speeches. Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom just to yourself? So he's like, do you really think that you're better than us? What do you know that we don't know? 
What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. So he is turning Job's words on him right here. Job actually said he wasn't inferior to them. He also sarcastically said to Bildad that wisdom comes with age. Remember when I said, keep this in mind, remember that he said this, and Eliphaz is over here saying, well, guess what? We've got wisdom on our side, either by saying that they're older than him or the fact that there are people older than Job who are standing on their side of the lines agreeing with them. Are the comforts of God too small for you or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit or your temper and anger, those are other meanings of this word in Hebrew, against God and bring such words out of your mouth? So he's like appalled at what Job is saying over here. What is man that he can be pure? Well, we know that no one is righteous, so man is nothing that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous. Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. And some scholars believe that holy ones is referring to angels, or others say, no, this is referring to God's children. But regardless, either way, I don't think God trusts any of us. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. Well, not yet anyway, because right now we see that Satan has access to heaven. He's not fully in heaven. He's outside of heaven at the desk of God. But nevertheless, that is obviously bringing some sort of impurity laid at the door there. But one day he's going to be cast into the lake of fire, no longer having access. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. I will show you. Hear me. And what I have seen, I will declare. So he likes to base everything on his own experience, his own observation, and his own, quote, wisdom. What wise men have told without hiding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given and no stranger passed among them. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days through all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. So he's saying only the wicked suffer, which we know is not true. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. And by the way, he is referring to Job when he is speaking these things here. So he is, in a sense, starting to indict Job by saying, you might have been rich before, but this is why you've been destroyed. This is why you're coming to an end. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness, and he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. Because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield— So he is accusing him of both arrogance and defiance, implying that these hard times means that he has defied God somehow because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his ways. So he's accusing him of self-indulgence and has lived in desolate cities and houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins. He will not be rich and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness, and the flame will dry up his shoots, and by the breath of his mouth he will depart. Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. So he is saying the wicked may seem to prosper for a little bit, Job, but eventually they're going to be emptied out like you are. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. So he's going to shrivel up, dry up. 
For the company of the godless is barren, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. Now, he's using these two words here the same way that those two words were used regarding the fire that consumed Job's sheep. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. So Eliphaz is over here making a lot of valid points. I mean, he's saying none are righteous, true. God can't trust us, true, because we all sin. And heaven does have some pollution outside the door, with Satan always trying to get his grimy little hands on God's plans. And he says that the wicked will eventually come to an end. All true. But the problem is that he is more concerned with being right than actually doing right. He is so full of self-righteousness and pride that it leads to false accusations and assumptions with no new insight. We didn't hear him say anything new. And he's also saying all of this without any sense of love or mercy or compassion or empathy. So heart check, are you more concerned with being right than doing right? Does today's reading help shape your attitude and responses to people? And remember, we can have all the knowledge in the world, but if we have not love, we are just a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. So we've got to be more loving in the way that we respond to people. Now, Job replies here in chapter 16. So then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. That's an insult. (laughs) Shall windy words have an end? So there they are using those words. Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you in a mocking way, of course. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. Or in other words, lessen the intensity or pacify the pain. So Job is recognizing that he would be a much better comforter than his friends are being at this point. But it is because he has experienced suffering and it has made him more empathetic and compassionate. He tells them that if he were in their shoes, he would strengthen them and he would take away their grief because he gets it. But they're instead heartless and cynical. So heart check, has your suffering or hard times changed your perspective and made you more empathetic toward others who are struggling? Verse six, if I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? So in other words, he's saying speaking or being quiet, neither one of those are going to make a difference here. Surely now God has worn me out. So he's feeling very exhausted. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up, which is a witness against me. And my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me into pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with the breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and I have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands and my prayer is pure. Now notice that I highlighted here in different colors because I don't know about you, But didn't you see Jesus in all of this? Even if Job is not technically uttering prophetic words here, you can see Jesus, that he went through these things. 
He had that leanness that rose up against him. He was torn in wrath and felt like God hated him. Because remember how he was saying, take this cup from me? Well, the cup in the Bible oftentimes represents God's wrath. And he knew that he was going to take that wrath upon himself, feeling separated from the Father, feeling like his enemy, because that is where God's wrath is poured out, is upon the enemies of God. When he says that men have gaped at me with their mouth and they struck me insolently on the cheek, they do that to Jesus. They come together against him in the masses. He's given up to the ungodly. He is cast into the hands of the wicked. His side is slashed open and his blood and the water is poured out on the ground. Remember, he sweat blood, so his face was red with weeping and all the while being completely pure and without sin. I love when we can see Jesus in the Old Testament because again, it brings us so much hope. Oh, earth, cover not my blood. So he's like, don't erase my life. Let my blood speak if indeed I am destroyed at this point and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. Whoa, he's doing a switcheroo here. My witness, either meaning God himself or even Jesus as the great mediator, as he will imply here again in verse 21. And he who testifies for me is on high. And I love that Job sees God as his witness because ultimately he knows that no matter what his friends or anyone else says about him, God is going to reveal the truth. He's going to testify for us. So heart check. Are you able to see God as your witness? And how does it help you in your moments of defense? Verse 20, my friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God. So even though his friends are speaking against him, he views his conflict being with God here. That he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come, I shall go the way from which I shall not return. So we end here with Job once again declaring how short this life is on earth. And he recognizes that he may never see a solution on this side of heaven. And that is the case for us as well. So heart check, does knowing how short life is leave you comforted or does it leave you anxious about solving your problems or your issues in this life? And taking it into your deep dive questions for the week, in what ways were you able to see God's heartbeat throughout this reading? Does it challenge or affirm your understanding of who God is? And does Job's discourse on the brevity of life inspire you to be more intentional in your own life? How does Eliphaz's discourse influence your own views on self-righteousness or pride or humility? Does Job's switching between feeling like an enemy of God and feeling as though God is his witness help to affirm your faith or does it weaken it? And if you had the opportunity to respond to Job, what would you say? So Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of eternal life. It is because of what Jesus has done that we are able to hold on to hope for a better life than the one that we're currently living in, whether we feel blessed or like we're drowning. So help us to have a good understanding of this so that we will be more intentional in our own lives by cultivating more hope and resilience in the everyday. We know and understand that while this earth and everything in it is passing away, we are being renewed and transformed for the day that we are in your glorious presence. What a beautiful hope to hold on to, Lord. Everything will be better than it is now, and we thank you for that. Thank you so much for warning us about the dangers of pride and self-righteousness today. I pray, God, that we will be constantly aware of this when it begins to creep into our spirit and ask that you will cast it out. Help us to recognize our own self-interests and not project them in a negative way into others. 
May we always come from a place of love and humility, reflecting our reverence toward you. I pray that we will have more compassion and more empathy, more mercy, more kindness, especially toward other believers. We are all on the same team, so please, Lord, help us to act like it. Thank you so much for showing us Jesus today and reminding us that as horrible of a situation that Job is in, Jesus, you suffered an even greater agony. And because so, you have so much compassion on us and will even more so contend for us and fight for us when the enemy wants to do us in. Don't let this stir up fear in us, God. I pray that we will know that you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Help us to know that you will always be with us and will never leave us to struggle and stay afloat on our own. Help us, Lord, to know that you are not our enemy, but you are for us. We know that our problems may never be solved on this side of heaven, but we're going to continue, Lord, to put our trust in you, our sovereign God, our divine advocate, the revealer of truth. Thank you for being that for us. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Heaven and salvation is a divine gift that is given to us by grace. None of us deserve it. In fact, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, and every single one of us have fallen short, and then we desperately need someone to pay that price. And Jesus did it. He didn't do it because we are righteous on our own merit. He did it because He loves us, and He wants to spend eternity with us. But it won't happen if we don't receive him before we leave this earth as Lord and Savior. Hell is a very real thing, and there is no second chance after we take our last breath here. So I want to be able to give someone the opportunity today who is saying, I'm ready. I've never given my life to Christ. I don't know where I'm going to end up after I die. But I don't want to live another day without knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt where I am going to end up. I see now that this is real and I want to believe. So if that is you, we're going to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again, then you will be saved. So we're going to say this prayer together. Believe it in your heart, speak it with your mouth and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation. Dear Heavenly Father. Thank you for Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.